Brett Goldstein with Health Innovation Media, and I'm here at the Florida Association of ACOs meeting 2017 in Orlando, Florida, and I'm joined by a good friend, an incredible thought leader and businessman, Farzad Mashari. Welcome. And, and businessman. I have now become a businessman. I guess you're right. Yes, you are, and a doctor, too, to go to boot, right? <laughs> so we just finished up a presentation on uh, a panel with uh, some of the leading folks at the uh, uh, health plans talking yeah. about ACOs. So what sort of topics maybe did they cover that surprised you? Anything new or sort of continuation of what we're seeing around ACOs? Yeah, look, I think from a couple of years ago, the big difference with the payer panel is everyone has now their standard program. It used to be, like, come, negotiate, we'll try to custom fit a suit for you. There's now a lot of off-the-rack options with, uh, with the payers, which is really important for moving ahead. It used to be actually, like, really hard to get a value contract from a payer. It's less hard now. Not that it's not hard, but it's less, much less hard now. But the most interesting thing I heard was when uh, the question was around the future. Are we going to continue? A lot of them said, like, yeah, most people are in one-sided programs. And I said, well, what's it going to be five years from now? And to a person, the, the plan said, you're going to have to move to risk. You're going to have to move to downside risk. You're going to have to share. If you want to share value with us, you have to actually share our incentives, which are not one-sided. <laughs> the payers have two-sided risk, and you need to start taking two-sided risk with us. So in that sort of a model, I was sort of thinking about this afterwards, as we move to this two-sided risk model, what value then from a health plan do they bring? Is it the analytics and the ability to understand the data as they move that to the providers, or is it really going to become more of a direct, here's somebody paying for that insurance, and here are the providers with risk dealing with it? Well, I think it's a, it, it's a really important question. What is the, who, who contributes what piece of the value equation? I know that a lot of the payers have had to develop their own clinical services, wraparounds, uh, home health programs, care management programs, case management programs, and so forth. And I think when you get provider groups who are really, really good at risk, they can say, no thanks, I don't need any of that, right? You just do the admin stuff, give me my you know, 85% of MLR and I'll deal with, with all, the, all the network costs below that. But I think that's going to be, um, uh, that, that's not going to be the, the rule. I think there's still going to be the need for coordination and, and uh, gap filling between payers and providers. The one thing that is exclusively the payers domain is around really making sure that the patient's financial benefits are aligned with what the providers telling them to do. So it's very uncomfortable if a provider's uh, saying like, look, this is the best place for you to go get that MRI, and the patient's like, but I don't bear any respons different responsibility for here or here. Why? Why should I go here? Right. So you never want to pit a, a physician against a patient's financial interest ever, ever, ever. And that's where I think we really need the health plans uh, to work with value-based arrangements to align everyone's incentives: the patients, the providers, and the plans. So as you think about those providers who are going to move further out on that yeah. risk model, um, there are a few out there that are doing it, maybe a few more that are looking at it. What do they really need to be thinking about to be ready to do that? Um, I, I think that you are going to have to, even more, the idea of partnerships is going to be important. How do you find people with the analytic capabilities, the financial capabilities, the risk reserve capabilities, track record? Uh, and the ability to join in larger groups. You need to spread that risk uh, around, but you don't want, once you're now taking downside risk, who's in the boat matters a huge deal, right? So you don't want to, you don't want to have, particularly for independent practices, you don't want to have another practice in the boat who's going to drag it down, who's going to drag their oar, who's going to not do the work, who's going to, uh, you know, uh, ruin the chances for everybody. 
So it's that it's that at the same time, like you want more good people on the boat and you really want to have good governance to kick people out if they're not doing the right thing. But the data and analytics piece is huge, right? We just got the ACO results and I hope you get to yeah. talk about it a little bit. Got the ACO results and I was surprised. We came within a smidge, a hair of, of accurately predicting what our ACOs were going to do. But I was really shocked at how many ACOs came to me and said, man, that final reconciliation blew me away. I had no idea. I, was, I thought we were going to be somewhere totally different. And, like, you can't do that with two-sided risk. you got to have much, much better ability to predict and to track how you're doing. Right. And, and before we get to this, this concept of, of the results, do you think the providers are going to be able to get to that point where they can narrow themselves up from a quality perspective? Because I, I know there were a couple comments, and I made one as well, that you've got to say, wait, these providers are over-utilizers, or maybe there's a little bit of fraud over here, or there's other stuff, and it might be your bud. So are you hearing a little more discussion around that amongst providers? I I am, I am. And we had a a great case in West Virginia where we gave a group of primary care docs for the first time the data. And, and, one of the, and, and we said, hey, look, this is you, this is someone else. And this one provider whose lab costs were astronomical, she said, but that's not my lab costs. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't do those labs. We were like, well, who did? She's like, looks at the data. Well, it's this nephrologist. Turns out this nephrologist had nine times the lab costs of the other nephrologist. So she called him up and said, hey, this is what I'm seeing. These are my incentives. I can't keep sending patients to you if you don't fix it. Guess what he did? He fixed it. He fixed it. That's incredible. Fantastic. That's a great story, actually. So let's now get back to this concept of the, or the new report. Yeah. So what did you see in the report? Feel good about it? Is it where it needs yeah. to be going? Yeah. Uh, look, I, I think there's been uh, a little bit of uh, hating on ACOs yeah. <laughs> uh, in, in some policy circles and people saying like, oh, we were promised this. And I'm like, that's not, you know, the CBO projections were actually pretty modest. But think about the movement. Think about the movement. And, and, there, and the result finally this year is very clear that, one, there are substantial savings being generated. Two, the savings are an underestimate of the true value being created. Three, you get better over time. First-year cohorts, 20% get savings. By year three, 40% are getting savings. And fourth, and maybe most importantly for me, it's not like everyone's the same. If you look at, and again, granted, the benchmark is an underestimate. It's not a great counterfactual of what costs would have been in that because it's not regional. It's national. Anyway, we can talk about that. But the hospital-based ACOs were about evenly split. Half reduced costs, half had increased costs. Uh, and in the groups that even that were within the, outside the statistical bounds, 25%, 25% or something. But in the physician-led groups, 43% actually exceeded the savings threshold, 43% versus 14%. So a very dramatic shift and very dramatic evidence uh, that the independent physician-led provider, physician-only groups are something special. And I think from a policy point of view, it points the path for the administration of where they have to be sure they don't, they don't you know, kill the geese that lay the golden eggs. Right. And, is that, and that really gets back to the whole idea of the hospital systems having this built infrastructure, and they're still trying to figure out how to fund that, in essence, while they go forward and say, and say this. Do you think so? Yeah, I mean, we talk about foot and two canoes, except yeah. with them, one of their feet is encased in concrete. Right. 
I love that. That's a great, a great point. So it's been interesting to watch because I do believe the provider ones are clearly maybe the way to go, you know. And then we've got to figure out how do we maintain that quality inpatient environment recognizing that maybe it doesn't need to be 500 beds anymore. Hopefully we're down to 300 or 200. And, and, and look, there may be other models that are better. If you can become an integrated delivery network and take full cap risk and make your own health plan, great. Now your incentives are fully, you're all in. If you're doing bundles on procedures, you're all in, right? But it may be that the best model for a hospital system doing value um, may be better in these other forms than than in the ACO format. And certainly, so, certainly until they're they're really serious and committed to it. And I think yeah. downside risk will have that focusing. And so to those that haven't necessarily been able to achieve the savings, do you see any similarities or uh, approaches they're not doing or things they're trying that aren't working that yeah. maybe? Yeah. Look, I think the, the three things usually are how much are you investing? What is the kind of IT and data capabilities you have? And how well have you incorporated into workflows? Those are the three things that we had validate, just like drill, 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 right? Do we have the right contracts and alignments financially? Do we have the right data and tools at the point of care? And then do we have the right workflows? But, you know, when I talk to people and I say, well, you didn't get savings, what did you, what did you change? Uh-huh. And they say, well, we're having monthly meetings. And we're reviewing what we have. I'm like... Okay, you're having monthly meetings, but what have you changed? And like, well, we meet every month. I'm like, no, what is the patient, how is the patient experience different, right? And guess what? If you don't actually change something about how the patient, if, if patients aren't getting called, if they're not being seen after, immediately after visit, if you don't have more access, if you don't do care management, if you're not doing referral management, then you're not changing. Then don't and expect And if you're anything. not doing your analytics and pulling new reports and saying, how do we act on that? If you're not looking for impactable risk and all the rest of it. Sure. So you mentioned a little bit about Alidaid. How's it going? Oh, it's going great. Yeah. We're in uh, we're in 20 states now, 20 ACOs, 20 states. We have about $3 billion under management now, uh, both on the Medicare side, and now we have about a dozen commercial contracts, and we're moving into Medicaid, Medicare Advantage, and our first, you know, we have a, now a number of two-sided risk, and now we're moving into our very first um, fully capitated uh, risk-bearing entity arrangements with Medicare Advantage. So it's very exciting. Well, fantastic. And so as you move down that road, because you move in that deeper and deeper into that risk model, what are you changing in your company and how are you looking at it as you talk about? No, that's a great, that's a great point. And we, we have a lot of um, emphasis around building things today that can scale, right? Because we're uh, one of the strengths of doing this across so many different ACOs is that we get to take our analytics and learn from each other and spread that across 20 ACOs. We get to take our data platform. We get to leverage all of the learnings um, and and share that across a bigger and bigger base. And then when some of these, you know, national payer negotiations, we're not just negotiating for one doc group here. We're actually able to have the conversation at the corporate level across a number of, uh, of different markets. But for us always, it's about the people. It's about can we maintain our values? Can we keep the right, keep hiring and motivating people who are here because they want to do what's good for patients, good for doctors, and good for society? And for us, that's the, that's the triple shot. Well, fantastic. Let me ask you now a little bit about what do you think about some of these future initiatives, things like um, CRISPR, 
machine learning, precision medicine, some of the genetic stuff, wearables, tech. Do you see anything there that excites you as you look at how you build out that future model? Um, what I'm actually excited about is um, behavioral economics. You know, Richard Thaler won the Nobel Prize. Nobel economics, actually. right? Um, Kevin Volpe and his right, staff, yeah. and 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 Cass Sunstein and uh, and all the predictably rational learnings. I think we need to get a lot smarter about um, how to motivate behavior change and how to, for all of us, for for our doctors, for our staff, and for patients, and for you know for 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 everybody. Um, you're not rational. I'm not rational. Right. Uh, but in order to figure that out, we actually have to have an experimentation platform, right? We have to be able to say, well, we think if we call someone and say this, we're going to get fewer no-shows than if we do this. Now go do it. Now go test. randomize. Now go test it and learn. And very few people in healthcare actually do A-B testing, mm -hmm. test and learn cycles. And we hope to have 20 laboratories this year doing test and learn. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today at the Florida Association of ACOs meeting. It's great to see you again, Farzad. Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.